Hey, it's Francis. You know, this week we are bringing back a show from a couple years ago that honestly was just super fun. It's all about things you've got to try. Check it out. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Hi, this is Ceylongo from Haley, Idaho. I credit, I guess, quarantine for this idea, as it's not often I have an open bottle of red wine and an open package of Oreos concurrently. However, the last few months have been hard on all of us. And to make it a little easier on yourself, go ahead and try dunking those Oreos in that red wine. It is delicious. A thousand times better than milk. Hi, this is Brian in Arlington, Virginia. My favorite trick is to simply grate any citrus zest, like orange or lemon, into the sugar that's also called for in the recipe, and let it just infuse the sugar. Uh, It gives a good amount of time for that flavor to really develop. Hi, I think people should try peanut butter and dill pickle sandwiches. So I can't condone this practice because I was never brave enough to try it, but an old boyfriend's family swore that the best way to have a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich was to spread peanut butter along with the mayo on the bread. Oh, you know what you gotta try is the next time you order takeout pizza, make sure they don't slice it. And then when you get it home, you can slide that whole pie in your hot oven and crisp it right back up. It's pretty amazing. So here's something to try. Putting cheese in your hot chocolate. I'm talking Colombian hot chocolate with white cheese in it. My wife put me on it, and it's so good. And here I thought Chocolate and Cheese was just the title of an album by the stoner band Ween. This week, we're all about things you gotta try. Some of them are like chocolate and cheese, kind of surprising. But we have tips and tricks that you've sent in and some unexpected ideas from a bunch of pros. And I get deep into an ancient grain from Africa called Fonio with the chef Pierre Cham. I also try to convince Ariel Dumas, head writer of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, to spend an entire day making one of my favorite recipes. But first, I come to the defense of the rice cooker. Kush Bouchard is the restaurant editor at Food & Wine magazine, She's a hardcore rice aficionado, and she once hurt my Chinese soul by telling me that she is not a fan of rice cookers. In fact, she insists that growing up in an Indian-American home, she's never even used one before. Okay, Kush, have you seriously never used a rice cooker before? Not once. Not ever. Zero times? Maybe we'll, yeah, we'll maybe never use one. (laughs) (laughs) What's the deal? Okay, I, first of all, I was of the opinion that no Asian cooks cook rice without a rice cooker, but maybe that's just wrong. Well, Asians are not a monolith, Francis. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, except for the rice cooker, I thought. But please educate me. Well, I think we're all very talented at cooking rice. I just think we all have different methods. I did a little survey on this, and I texted a number of friends um, that I know are from all parts of the South Asian diaspora, and... Only one of them came back to me with saying that they use a rice cooker. My mom had one in the 80s for a minute, but like (laughs) still prefers. I think we're just like a pressure cooking people. We love the pressure cooker. Oh, do you pressure cook your rice? Yeah, 100%. Wait, have you never tried pressure cooking rice? No, I started this to try to convince you to use a rice cooker, but maybe you'll convince me to use a pressure cooker. Tell me about pressure Uh, cooking. Yeah, it's the best thing ever. It's so quick. Like, you just put it on, and like 20 minutes later, you have like fresh rice. I mean, okay, I'm also a strong believer, though, that like different types of rice are better cooked with different methods. So if I'm doing basmati, like something with like a long grain that I want really separate, I'm a stickler for cooking basmati on the stovetop because I still believe that's the best method to get like the singular separate long grains of rice. But like when mm. you want something that's a little bit starchier, you know, like a medium grain rice that like you use for most other things. Yeah, pressure cooker is the way to go. Sushi rice in a pressure cooker is amazing. It gets like extra sticky in the best way. Really? Okay, now I now I'm starting to feel a change. <laughs> okay, because I have okay. Look, here's the deal. Like I remember when I was in culinary school, and uh, no shade on him because I I love the chef. He was really really great. But um, 
you know, we got to the lesson on cooking rice and he just looked at me like, I know you know how to cook rice, right? And I was like, uh, okay, in 2020, I realized that was extremely racist. But at the, at the time, <laughs> I was just like, I don't know, dude, I cook rice the way my mom taught me with a rice cooker. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I was like the worst at cooking rice because I was like, without the rice cooker, I just felt like totally utterly at sea like i was like i know how to put the right or wash the rice and then rinse the rice and then drain the rice and then put it in the machine with the proper amount of water which again as my mom taught me was one knuckle crease above the level of the rice uh and then you hit the button and you're done and like that's how i always cooked it my entire life until i went to culinary school and then i learned about like ratios (laughs) 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 which i have not been able to shake so now I actually like measure the rice and measure the water and I feel a little bit like a race trader, but that's how I do it now. <laughs> <laughs> I've never actually done, I've seen that kind of meme go around the internet, but it's like something I don't relate to the whole like finger level, like knuckle level measuring of water, like to rice. My mom never did it that way. She always used like steel bowls called katoris and it's like one katori of rice, two katoris of water. Like that's how, mm. it, like two and like just a little bit more. Like that's how I always learned to cook rice. Okay. This is amazing to me because I think part of maybe why I have such a warped view on uh, pan Asian rice cookery <laughs> It's because I, I, for many years, I I dated uh, an Indian woman, a Sindhi woman, and her roommate was Korean. And her roommate had this thing about cooking rice in the rice cooker and just always having it, like literally plugged in with hot rice. So literally 24 hours a day, if she needed hot rice, it was there for her. Um, And by 24 hours a day, I mean mostly between the hours of two and five when she came home from the bar. (laughs) I mean, I respect that, though. 24-hour access to, like, hot, fresh rice. Like, I can get on board with that. I mean, it's pretty cool, right? Um, That's really funny. Do you cook? Have you cooked basmati in a rice cooker? Now I feel judged because I have. (laughs) Just curious because... Uh, no, oh, I just wonder. For, see, for me, like I just, I'm like a real jerk when it comes to basmati. Like, I really just want super separate long grains of rice, and like I. I just worry that if it's all cooked like compactly in a rice cooker that I don't know it'd be get too starchy it would just kind of clump more than I want it to like I'm actually a fan of that weird white people pasta version of like boiling rice with like too much water when I make basmati because it does actually keep the rice grain separate especially when you're parboiling for biryani you can like really control just how tender the rice is about to get um, and you don't have to guesstimate how much water to put in because you're just about to drain it anyways and finish it on the oven hmm. um I don't know if you'll approve of the basmati that I've cooked in my rice cooker. <laughs> uh, to me, it definitely does come out still pretty separate. It, it's probably not as perfectly like slender and like sharp. The edges aren't quite as sharp. But I think that's just like the nature of the rice, right? Like basmati is not super starchy rice. It doesn't yeah. want to get clumpy. So you kind of have to like make it go against its nature. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but play talk well more with about others. the boiling rice thing because I thought that was a very... Like, to me, like, my people would never boil rice like pasta. Um, but I know, like, oh, if you're making, like, Persian rice, that's a step and you do before you do the tadig. Um, but you like to boil. And do you do anything else with it? Like, take me through that process. Yeah. So I like to boil, especially when I'm parboiling. I mean, when I make basmati, I usually do cook it on the stovetop with, like, you know, the correct ratio of water. Like, if you get it right, basically, you want it to steam on the stovetop. So you must keep the lid on. Never stir your rice. People who stir their rice get gloopy rice. And, like, that's where people mess up. Just let it cook undisturbed. And if you cook basmati rice, like, if you cook it right, it should stand up almost vertically, a lot of the grains, which is really crazy. Like, that's when you know you've, like, done it right. Yeah. Um, But I also But that's not boiling. That's, like, like cooking with the right ratio. That's not Yeah, that's the stovetop. So I boil when I like to parboil. And I think that's probably where Persians also do too, where you like you're finishing it off in the oven or finishing off with like other stuff. Um, I also like to soak rice, which I think is not maybe as common as I thought it was. Like when you soak rice, it starts the water absorption of the rice like way ahead of time. So you soak it for like 20 or 30 minutes and then it reduces your cooking time by 
I don't know. I always think it cooks like at least five to ten minutes faster. It also preserves the flavor of a lot of like aromatic rice. So like jasmine, basmati, right? They're like very aromatic. Yeah. And so by soaking it, you preserve that flavor because you reduce the cook time. So it's like it's spending less uh, time on the heat. And I'm not that patient. So maybe that's why I also like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> do you have other rices you like to cook aside from basmati? Yeah, I love a sushi rice. I love like a sticky rice. I mean, I love all rice. Like rice is definitely my favorite food group. I mean, I think my number one question, I love to know, this is how I like define who my like real friends are and like who are my fake friends. Like I'll ask you the question, if you could only eat, you know, one thing for the rest of your life, like is it either rice or is it pasta? And obviously anyone who chooses pasta for the rest of their life is like, I can't be friends with you. Not on a deep level. (laughs) Like we have fundamental value differences at that point. I have to tell you. I mean, I love pasta, but I can't live without rice. <laughs> I I 100% feel that. But if the question was rice or noodles, I mm. would have to think hard. Because then we're talking about That's rice fair. noodles. And pasta would be part of that, you know, family. Well, okay. Well, here's – this is, I think, why I do rice versus pasta. Because I think rice noodles still counts as, like, a rice format. You can make <laughs> it from rice. And therefore, it's still acceptable. You're just giving up, like, wheat noodles, which – delicious in many formats but i would rather eat rice at the end of the day like if for the rest of my life than you know wheat noodles rice noodles count rice cakes count as part of that listen anything with the rice base counts in team rice (laughs) okay 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 so kush will you you got to try this once okay use a rice cooker once but then I have to like go buy or uh, there's so many appliances. We mine. all have enough appliances. M- mine is probably gonna... literally 30 years old and it's still ticking. And the rice is, it's great. And here's the deal. Like there is no feeling like pressing that button and then looking at the sky and telling your ancestors who have spent millions of hours over the generations, like tending to the right flame and like moving the coal in and out of the stove or what did they had to do so the rice didn't burn or come out too mushy or whatever. And you just telling them like, look, ma, I got this. You don't have to worry about me anymore. <laughs> I get that feeling from making rice in the Instant Pot. It's the same thing. It's a button. Okay, okay, that's great. And I look that's to great. my ancestors and I'm like, here, 20 minutes to have rice and dal. And you can cook the dal with the rice. It's amazing. If you stack them in containers in the Instant Pot, can you do that in a rice cooker? Oh, my God. Now because you can make rice the and dal minds. at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the Instant Pot doesn't make, like, a cute jingle. I hear the Zojirushi machines, like, make, like, really cute jingles. And that would maybe convince me to use something. Yeah, only $600 later, you could have the Zojirushi jingle. <laughs> All right, Kush, it has been a blast to talk with you about uh, varying cultural approaches towards rice. (laughs) I always love to talk about rice, Francis. Call me anytime. Kush Bouchard is the restaurant editor of Food & Wine, and she's the world's biggest fan of yogurt rice. That's for another show. Coming up, we have Ariel Dumas. She's the head writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, and she gets talked into making my amazing and absolutely masochistic ratatouille recipe. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. 
splendid table. It's Christina here from Milk Bar with, of course, Butter the Dog in tow. Listen, I've got a secret weapon, non-fat milk powder. I know, it's kind of crazy. Do not use it to make milk. I repeat, do not use non-fat milk powder to make milk. However, use non-fat milk powder in your favorite chocolate chip cookie recipe to give a greater depth of flavor, a little bit of chew, that oomph, that something to what makes it great to make it even better. Add it to crumbs and crumbles and pie crumbs to give a little bit more density, a little bit more edge. It is like the secret weapon seasoning in any cookie, cake, pie, ice cream recipe that you could think of. It doesn't exactly add milkiness per se, but it adds texture and chew and flavor, which is what we're all always going after when we're spending time in the kitchen, right? So yes, that was pastry chef Christina Tozzi with her dog Butter. And this week we are all about stuff you have to try in your kitchen. And now I am going to try to be as convincing as she was. Ariel Dumas is one of the funniest people on Twitter, which is saying a lot, but probably not as much as telling you that her day job is to be one of the head writers for Stephen Colbert. Anyway, a few weeks ago, her show was on a break, and she was planning this like fabulous getaway. But, you know, 2020, and she's stuck at home instead. But I once saw her tweet about making french fries at home and whoever puts themselves through the hassle of making french fries at home. So I knew she was down for a cooking adventure and I figured, well, I've got a cure for your pain. Okay, Ariel, I know you were supposed to fly on a beautiful, life-changing trip to the south of France yesterday. I'm so sorry that is not happening now. Thank you for your thoughts and prayers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think I have a way for you to get over it. You have to make my ratatouille recipe. Uh, are you are you into ratatouille? I you know I <laughs> I've I don't know if I've had it. I I like all the components except <laughs> eggplant, which I've had a bad encounter with. Oh no! Yeah, we've all been there with the eggplant. A moussaka just scarred me for life. But I'd love to make your ratatouille. I just what does it involve? Yeah, okay, so I have to be honest. So. My ratatouille recipe is, I think, possibly the greatest achievement of my career. Whoa. And it is also profoundly stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay, because ratatouille is supposed to be super simple, right? Like, you were going to fly to the south of France. This is where it's from. And it's, like, beautiful there. And the gardens are gorgeous. And the produce is unreal. And it's like, okay, the whole point of ratatouille is, hey, it's summer. I've got a ton of tomates and aubergine, and uh-huh. I don't know what the French word, courgette, uh, I think that's peppers, French word for zucchini. Uh, and like, I've got too much of it, I'm just going to throw them in a pot, and it's going to be delicious, because I have delicious vegetables, right? And my version, I admit, is kind of ridiculously over-involved. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you like cook things separately, you like cook things with different techniques. I'm not going to go all the way into it, because um, I don't want to scare you off, I guess. Uh- but I do want to say this. You kind of have to go get good stuff. Like, go to a farmer's market and get ripe tomatoes. It doesn't have to be, like, expensive heirlooms. Just, like, beefsteak tomatoes are fine. Just make sure they're, like, heavy and red and ripe. Uh And they look juicy. And, like, you know, if the farmer is, like, standing with all zucchini and just being like, please take the zucchini. I have too much zucchini. (laughs) Like, get that zucchini. Uh Uh-huh. You get some red peppers, some herbs, onions, garlic, uh, eggplant. Um... Okay, I have to admit, I don't, I, I, to this day, I have no good way of telling if eggplant is going to be good or if it's going to be bitter. I'm just going to get one that looks like the emoji, you know? Yeah. That looks exactly <laughs> like the emoji. Uh, that'll be my shopping guide. Yeah, that, that's great. That's great. So it's a crapshoot. But promise me this. Okay. Promise me that when you make it, uh-huh. you will turn off your air conditioning. And okay. you will open your windows and... <laughs> It's not going to make it taste any better, but (laughs) inevitably, when you're making this recipe, Uh you are going to stand for so long in front of the stove. (laughs) It is going to be so uncomfortable that I kind of feel like you might as well just go all in Um, and like just go in on the experience and just sweat and curse and just get into it. Okay, wait. Can I can I just say I'm I'm from Minnesota and I am a 
delicate flower when it comes to heat. If I, if I get hot, which is easily, I just get very pale and very wet. And my fiance had to prop me up several times when we went to Mexico. It was a disaster. But I, you know what? Courting disaster is my favorite thing to do. And you said this was incredibly stupid. And as a comedy writer... Incredibly stupid is a goal that I reach for every day. So This is perfect then. This is going to be a match made in heaven. My stupid ratatouille and Ariel Dumas. <laughs> it's, it's, this, is, this was meant to be. How long does it take to make again? Like, you know, four to six hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll send you the recipe. All right. Wish me luck. So off she went, and a week later, we checked back in. Okay, so we are back. Ariel, uh, how did Ratatouille Fest 2020 go? Um, You know, it went. (laughs) (laughs) And it went, and it went, and it went. (laughs) I had such a positive attitude going into it. It really dragged me down to rock bottom at some point. Oh, God. Yeah, but then I just sort of embraced it and, and, and turned my brain off. And that's when I just became a caveman applying heat to food. (laughs) <laughs> and I had a great time. So I recorded this whole adventure for you guys, and I started with the recipe. Okay, it's 9.28 a.m., and I'm a little worried because the title of the recipe, or the link, rather, to the recipe, involves the words ratatouille weapons grade style. Oh, my God, it makes a gallon... <laughs> <laughs> oh god okay i mean it it makes half a gallon not a full gallon <laughs> but like you know you can have to go big if you're gonna go at all right it, it, yeah but i mean it was it was just the magnitude like things were in pounds <laughs> and although it did end up being quite less than a gallon it was a gallon at several points <laughs> and uh it it made me doubt that mass is actually conserved because it was large and then small and then large again and then small. I mean, I know that's not how mass works, but I, I was astonished that everything on my counter went into the pot, which eventually went into a tiny Tupperware. So I had to start by going to the farmer's market, and I recorded that too. Wow, I'm at the farmer's market, and that's one nice thing about this recipe is that it got me out of the house, which, honestly, it takes a lot to do that these days. I love, I love house. By house, I mean apartment. Okay, here we go. Oh, the tomatoes look good. Hi, hi there. Uh, good. I need, um, like, four pounds of, like, these, of the red ones, um, and then I'll take one of these. One of these bad boys and a yellow one. All right. Okay, now we're grooving. And I see some eggplant. Yeah, the big purple. No, uh, the other, sorry, that darker purple one. Yeah, the one that looks like the emoji. Do you have like one big one or? Oh my god, the innuendo is so thick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he wasn't charmed. It was wild though. They were just picture perfect fruits and vegetables as far as the eye can see. It really uh it's really a prime time to make this recipe. It's the only time. Except for the whole like heat wave. Thing. <laughs> yeah. As you know, as I was cooking it, I was thinking, why couldn't you have reached out to me in October, you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not when you get the eggplants. Yeah. It, the whole thing revolves around when the eggplants want to show up. I guess so. Okay. <laughs> so one of the things about this recipe is that it seems like it should be made in a large farmhouse kitchen. Maybe like Ina Garden's <laughs> kitchen. Because I, an apartment-dwelling Manhattanite, have tiny things. I have this tiny Cuisinart that like is attached to a, an immersion blender. You know. Oh, dear uh, God. Yeah, oh, you don't have you a full size food processor? No, of course oh, not. So, oh, I'm sorry. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, um, and I had to resort to, you know, using some new techniques. All right, let's do this. You know, the thing is, like, the whole thing that's hard about this recipe is supposedly the time that it takes. But I want to say, jokes on you, Francis. I have no concept of time anymore. <laughs> this is the pandemic. Also, I love 
things that are a long time spent doing a menial task. One time I hand glued rhinestones to a pair of sneakers and it took me, I don't know, years. I loved it. So I'm excited for this. Okay, I've been cooking uh, for an hour and uh, cooking is in quotes because I have not yet turned on the stove. I've only managed to chop the first three ingredients in my little food processor because my food processor is the size of a coffee mug and I think I'm going to be cooking until midnight. Oh, we're having, a, we're having a fun time though. I'm chopping the tomatoes to get in, them into the tiny blender and they smell so good. Wait, so did you puree the four pounds of tomatoes or whatever in your little like mini food processor? No, here's what I did. I, I had to resort to another smaller piece of equipment. <laughs> And it was a personal-sized smoothie blender, like the kind that that maybe a a really healthy person might bring to work and annoy their colleagues by, like, mixing up kale and powder at their desk. So so I did the tomatoes, and that, honestly, the results shocked me. Oh, no. Okay, I'm pureeing the tomatoes, and um, for... Those of you who've never done this, I just want to let you know, if you puree tomatoes, what you get is a substance afterwards that's like pink and foamy, and to me looks exactly like a kid's throw up if you gave them a strawberry milkshake and told them to get on the jumpy castle. It's horrible looking, and I can't believe it's going to turn into anything that tastes good. And the cat agrees. (laughs) That poor cat. The poor cat was uh, like, why would you do that? The cat was horrified. All right, so you started cooking. Yes, eventually. I finally got to cooking. Okay. I've been cooking the garlic, onion, and shallot mixture for two hours. It looks fine. Um, every pore of my face is filled with garlic because I'm just staring at it. I really thought I would have the stamina for this recipe, but this is the first step, and actually it's been three hours. The first hour was prep. Okay, it's 4.53, and I just added the red pepper. Um, and I'm just, honestly, I'm grateful to have another color of sludge to look at. Oh, I can, I can hear your spirit waning, and... Um... I'm starting to feel bad, Ariel. I'm starting to feel bad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think now is about time <laughs> where the guilt could set in because I was miserable. It was really boring. <laughs> oh, no. God. Okay, we're almost done with hour four, and I've begun roasting my little zucchinis. And the red pepper mixture finally looks like something I want to eat. And, uh... It's almost time to add the tomatoes, at which point my misery will start all over again. Wee! Yeah, it was a highlight of the day. That was like the, the big moment. <laughs> and a new smell. You know, that was good. It's a good smell. It was good. I think I almost think the recipe could just be these steps and then you're done. And then you have like a red pepper. Oh, it was so yummy. I, I honestly might make it again and just quit after and just end the here. pepper step. <laughs> Yeah, because it was like this silky, dark red pepper jam. Yes. That must be, that's a thing people make, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. I, I actually have some in my fridge right now. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I could have saved myself four more hours. <laughs> I'm done with the red pepper mixture, and um, I almost want to call it a day. But I told myself that once I got halfway through the tomatoes, I could start drinking wine. So that's my goal. I'm really hesitant to, to cover up my beautiful red pepper jam with tomato muck, but I'm going to do it. Here we go. Sorry. Oh, God. Oh, it looks terrible. It sounds even worse. All right. <laughs> wait, okay, wait, wait. I want to know what happened to your eggplant, because I know oh, I don't you have know. mixed feelings on eggplant. It was fine. Like, it, I cut into it, and I was, first of all, it's light. That's a thing. Eggplants look like they should be heavy and juicy. But it's like something that you could pack a fragile item in. It's a soft, spongy material. I have to say that I don't really like eggplant as a rule, and I've never cooked with it. And and I wish that it tasted 
as beautiful as it looked. But it doesn't. It's like an old woolen sponge or hat. And you just cut it up and you put oil on it and just soaks up all the oil. And now there's two trays of it roasting in the oven and it's not doing anything. It's just sitting there. It was kind of turning brown as soon as I cut it. It's just a really unfortunate vegetable. And why can't it be more like its sister zucchini, which is just a beautiful vegetable. Okay, I mean, since we're honest here, I feel like I have an obligation to love eggplant as like a food person. Uh, uh, I don't love it. It's fine. It, okay, okay. So you're revealing a bit of truth that is, uh, <laughs> you're just spelling out the scam to me. That eggplant I, I mean, is not actually scam. something that anyone is like, ding dong, more eggplant, please. I, I mean, it can be really good, but most of the time sure, it's Sure, but it's good because of other things. Like baba ganoush is good because it's like a spreadable garlicky spread. Like that's yummy. Yeah, it's just kind of there to hold it together. Right. So, bottom line, eggplant, totally unnecessary, but I sucked it up, <laughs> cut it up, roasted it, it turned a weird color, I added it in, and I, I kept on trucking. Coming up on hour six here of the Ratatouille show with Ariel Dumas, I'm going to say I'm near the point where I could just be done now and it would be really good, but I'm going to keep pushing it to the limit, and I'm having fun. Thanks to now two giant glasses of white wine. <laughs> yes. Our old friends. Mama's little helper. <laughs> yeah. um, wait, so how long did it take in the end total? Oh, God. I think almost seven hours. Oh, man. Highway to the tomato zone. I'm drunk. <laughs> okay, so at this point, I feel like my identity is only pot stir woman stirring this pot of tomato sludge um, going into hour seven and um, I'm pretty vigorously stirring at this point but um, little flecks of molten tomato goo keep hitting me and, and it really is hot it's like lava and I'm getting tiny tiny burns um, but that that's part of it that's part of the fun Why would you make me do this? It is so much time for just a ratatouille. Why would you make me do this? Okay, the ratatouille, I think, is done. It looks like a, just a pile of muck. Um, I'm, I'm broiling some little toasts of the bread I made, and we're going to pour everything into bowls. Open another bottle of wine. It's incredible. Oh, thank you. It's so rich. Oh my god. Okay, I'll try it too, I guess. Mm. Oh yeah, it's really good. It tastes like a sauce. Almost. Um Alright. Okay. Okay, it's great. The end. It's incredible. It it did taste like something from a fancy restaurant, which you don't often make in your own home. You know? My job here is done. Which, congrats, you know, good job if that's what you wanted. But on the other <laughs> hand, I just want to pose a, an alternate theory that you know what else tastes good? Cutting a fresh, ripe tomato, putting just a little salt on it, and eating that on bread it, with some butter. Like, that's good too. I mean, it's a little quicker. <laughs> if convenience is your thing, sure. You don't get that nice, like, garlic fume <laughs> facial happening, but you can eat it standing over the kitchen sink and have the rest of your damn day. You know, I have to be honest, and uh, I absolutely 100% agree with you, which is why I have personally not made this recipe in probably six or seven years. Oh, come <laughs> on! <laughs> but it's really good. And like you said, it is so flavorful that, like, you can store it in your freezer and come January, you'll remember that amazing time you spent in August. Also, confession, we we didn't freeze any of it. We ate it all, and so, <laughs> the end. The whole half gallon? You ate the whole half gallon? Yeah, I mean, you know, th- what else is there to do in quarantine but eat? <laughs> okay, now I feel a little insulted. You're like, hey, it was fine. I ate a half a gallon of it. It was okay. <laughs> <laughs> we just shoveled that away. Well, I guess I have mixed feelings. Um, 
and I just want to offer my apologies that I took an entire day of your life away. But I think we I can will, agree that it was worth something. It was worth something. I won't say it was a waste <laughs> of my time, but I will say it was like a hilarious journey of my time. <laughs> and you know, like I said, I'll do I'll do pretty much anything for public radio. <laughs> I'll send you a tote bag. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Ariel Dumas is a head writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. You can find her on Twitter at Ariel Dumas, Dumas with an S at the end. And if you think you might be game for it, my recipe for weapons-grade ratatouille is at SplendidTable.org. Coming up, we have a quick bit of very unfancy wine advice from Ray Isle and the chef Pierre Cham on the grain we should all be trying, Fonio. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. Today, we're talking about things you gotta try. Hi, this is Ray Isle with Food & Wine Magazine. If you haven't checked out canned wines recently, you might want to give them a rethink. There's some pretty good wines out there, to to my surprise and probably to many other people's. Um, You know, if you try the Santa Julia Tintillo Malbec Bonarda blend, it's a red, it's chillable, it's delicious. Um, and it comes in a can. And also, I was impressed with the Lubanzi Chenin Blanc from South Africa, which donates part of its profits to supporting you know, vineyard workers in need in South Africa, which it's both a delicious wine and it serves a good cause. Um, interesting stuff going on in canned wine right now. You know, is there actually any physical reason that wine in a can should be any worse than wine in a bottle? I don't know. I, I can't think of that. Anyway, breaking down assumptions and stereotypes, people. That's what we're all about. You gotta try stuff if you're gonna live your best life. And the next thing I'm gonna tell you to try is fonio. It's a grain native to West Africa. It's sort of like this, like almost like instant whole grain couscous. It's super versatile. It has a powerful and complicated history. The Senegalese chef Pierre Cham loves it so much he actually imports it to the U.S. to help promote it as a crop for Senegalese farmers. And a few months ago, before COVID, he came to my home to show me how to enjoy it. So, Chef, thanks so much for coming over to my place. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here because we're going to taste something I've never had before. You brought Fonio, Mm -hmm. F-O-N-I-O, and you call this, like, the super grain of the universe. What is it? Well, actually, it's called the seed of the universe, and it's not even from me. It's uh, it's from a Dogon tradition. You know the Dogon? That's an ancient culture in Mali. Mm. It's like one of the oldest culture in Africa. Okay. And they're quite sophisticated, but they had this mythology that Fonio was uh, the seed of the universe. In their in their mythology, the whole universe started sprouted from this tiny grain of Fonio. Really, and that's that's quite fascinating to see Fonio in pretty much all the cultures in West Africa where it's grown. There's like a deep cultural myth around it. Really, and the Dogon have that. Yeah. Okay, so when I I don't know West African food that well, but when I think of it, I often think of rice as being. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not the primary grain, a primary grain. But fonio, I haven't seen before. So, But fonio seems to be obviously really important if it has this mythology. Um, looking at it now, 
you have a little bit of a bowl here, raw. Mm -hmm. It looks like sand. I mean, it truly looks like sand you might have picked up on a beach. It's mm -hmm. about the same size as um, sand. It has that beautiful sort of uh, beigey blonde color. Tell me about um, how it's grown and how you became so obsessed with it. Well, okay, so it does look like sand, and uh, I like the analogy you made with rice in West Africa. Rice is big in West Africa, but Fonio has been around for even much longer than rice. It's been around for 5,000 years. It's believed to be the oldest cultivated grain in Africa. Really? But it, there was a disruption with colonization. You know, a lot of our native crops, a lot of them, we started looking down at them and, and looking up at the crops that was imported. In Senegal, for instance, we import wheat as one of the grain mm -hmm. that we don't grow, but we eat baguettes and croissants mm -hmm. every street corner of Dakar. Mm -hmm. So that's that's part of the colonization heritage. So Fonio, the agriculture of Fonio is also very interesting because it grows in poor soil. Hmm. It grows in the Sahel region. You know, the Sahel really? is like south of the Sahara, yeah, where pretty much nothing grows. And Fonio thrives in this environment. It's drought-resistant, and it matures really fast. It matures in two months. There's, there's two a, months? Two months, yeah. That's like one of the fastest maturing grain, if not the fastest maturing grain. And you don't need water. This, and you don't this need is water. like a miracle. Yeah, well, it's a miracle. There's a, there's a nickname for it. They call it the lazy farmer's crop. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but this, there's a reason for that. You know, the first rain comes... All they have to do is throw the seeds. They don't even need to walk the soil or till the soil. They just throw the seeds after the first rain, and they can go and sit and wait for two months. They know <laughs> they know that it's going to grow. Even if the rain season is bad, it's like the fonio is guaranteed to grow. Oh, my God. So that's the lazy farmer's crop. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also very important for, for many reasons because, you know, rain is very inconsistent in that part of the world, sure. in the Sahel, especially now with climate change and, and all those implications. So yeah, yeah. the grain is important because they know they can rely on it. You know, if there's not enough rain, so they won't have rice, they won't have uh, millet or sorghum. They know that fonio will be there. Yeah. You mentioned before there was a disruption culturally because of colonialism and then people started to eat mm -hmm. rice and wheat and things like that instead of Fonio. Is Fonio regaining popularity in West Africa? Or, had, or did it never really go away? It, it did. It go away. In the cities like Dakar where I grew up, you wouldn't find Fonio. You know, it's like unless you're really uh, connected with a country mm -hmm. like me. For instance, my parents are from the south of Senegal where Fonio is still uh, respected and, and grown. Mm -hmm. You know, but other people from the city, they, they don't have access to Fonio because either they look down at it, they think of it as the country people food. Okay. Uh, but it's changing now. It's changing. There's a growing awareness. You know, there's a growing uh, middle class that's like they're conscious of the quality of the food. They, they want to eat better, better products. And Fonio is one of them. You know, Fonio is much more nutritious than the rice that they eat every day. Even even worse, in Senegal, we, we've been eating broken rice, which is the, the debris of rice you know, mm -hmm. that was like uh, brought to Senegal from Vietnam because mm -hmm. we had the same colonial empire of the French. Were right. like just, so the French brought these debris. The broken rice the to The broken you. rice to us, you know, because they wanted our farmers to focus on peanuts. You know, the French wanted peanuts for, for peanut oil. So they were bringing broken rice to, to Senegal. And the Senegalese, of course, embraced it because the French brought it. That was the whole, that same colonial mentality. It's right. like, you know, it's best. Well, they bought it must be better than what it, we have. Exactly, exactly. And even today, 60 years after independence, we still import rice from broken rice from Thailand, from Vietnam, from oh, India. And, you know, that rice wasn't really meant for consumption. But we make great things with it. It's like, I mean, it's, it looks yeah. like it's tiny. It looks like for you a little bit, but a little, a little bit bigger. Yeah. Jollof rice in Senegal is, yeah, I'm sure, amazing. It's, it's the I best. Here, I mean, it's, it's the best. I mean, don't tell <laughs> I, Nigerians. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know all West Africa wants to have a battle about who is the best Jollof rice. We don't have to get in that here. It's hilarious, that battle. But Jollof <laughs> means Senegal. Jollof is the traditional name for Senegal. Ah. So that's why it's called Jollof rice. Oh, what's rice. up now? The rice from yeah, Senegal. Yeah, drop. But, you know, my drop, when Ghanaian Nigerians, is hilarious. You watch them fighting over who makes the best jollof, but Senegalese stand on the side and just... <laughs> okay, so let's get back to the fonio. Um, can we taste it? Yeah, absolutely. We can taste it. And you see how fast it is cooking. It's, uh, it's a grain that cooks in five minutes. Yeah. All you need is one cup of fonio for one and a half to two cups of water. And you see how it comes out? Nice yeah. and fluffy like couscous. And you can taste it plain. 
and you, you'll, you'll realize that it doesn't have much of a flavor. It has a slightly nutty flavor, mm-hmm. but also than that, it's neutral, which makes it even more amazing as a, as a cook because it's versatile. It can just substitute any grains in your favorite recipe. Okay, great. So let's taste this mm-hmm. plain on its own. So, th- so to make this, you literally just boiled a cup and a half of water. Yep. You yeah. put in a cup of the fonio, you stirred it just a little bit, a little pinch of salt, put the cover on, put it on very low heat to basically let it absorb for four, four minutes. Four minutes, if that. Yeah. And it does look like very nice couscous, really it's fluffy. And gluten-free, separate. as opposed to couscous, you know. Oh, so, right on. So this, is a, this is a couscous, gluten-free couscous. And it likes to have a lot of sauce, you know, so you can be generous with it. Or, or if you make a salad, generous is the dressing. Mm-hmm. Mm, you're right. Mm. On its own, it's it has a flavor. It's a nice flavor, but it's nice. very subtle, very light, delicate, very delicate. delicate. Mm-hmm. For this aspect, the fact that it's very delicate in the regions where it's grown, particularly in the south of Senegal, that's the grain that they would offer to you or to any guest of honor if they really want to show you their hospitality. They would serve you a dish with fonio mm. because it has that delicacy. You know, they call it the the grain for kings, the grain for royalties. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's mm-hmm. that's just what they compare fonio with. Oh, it's so nice. Mm-hmm. And because they're such small granules, you can feel it sort of like roll around on your tongue in a really nice way. I like it's the way nice you describe dish. it. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> no, it totally is true. All right, so let's eat it with some sauce. Yep. So I brought some uh, mafe sauce here. That's a peanut sauce. That's a, one of the traditional ways to prepare fonio. Oh, there's also uh, a sauce gumbo with okra. Okay. So here you can mix it even with uh, what we call the lambets to bring some legumes to your to your dish. Okay. So lambe has sweet potato. That's the way we serve it at the restaurant with sweet potato and okra. And black eyed peas. Eye peas, of course, you know, which yeah. is a, a symbolic ingredient of our cuisine. Mm. Tell us what's in the mafe sauce. So the mafe sauce is a peanut-based sauce. So here you, are, you only have peanuts, peanut butter, tomato, onions, and that's cooked really slowly. You, you, you saute the peanut and, the, and the, uh, the peanut oil, the onions slowly. You add bay leaves. Oh, yeah. uh, scotch bonnet pepper but just a little bit not to, to, to bring it and that's optional and then lots of peanut butter mm-hmm. and your stock you know if you're making it vegetarian you can add vegetable stock or you can just add water mm. and just allow it to slowly cook and, and blend into this, this beautiful sauce oh it's really nice mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's very yeah obviously because there's so much peanut butter in it it's very smooth and rich and has that great peanut flavor but you can taste all that underlying little bit of um, the onion the sweetness yeah it's really nice yeah that's a, that's one of the traditional way of serving fonio you'll see most of the time in the regions where it's grown they will serve it with that peanut sauce or they will serve it with the okra sauce or tomato sauce really just a saucy dish but again, if you're into cooking, you can have so much fun with fonio because it really works with any sauce and it works with salads, you know, or fonio flour if you want to start baking too. That's another option as well. Oh, cool. Hmm? Yeah, I love it with the sauce because, of that again, that texture, it's almost, it turns it almost in, not quite like grits mm-hmm. or porridge, but still you can get a little bit of texture as you bite into it. Yeah, and I really like the, the analogy you made with grits because it can also be turn into grits there's like this this amazing grit recipe i have in the book that's like a cheesy grits and just the traditional way the way you prepare the grits but much faster of course because yeah, it's for you exactly. and if you want to add uh, i use bare vegetable stock but you can also add cream lots of cheese butter if you make it even richer and it serves grits and shrimps or grits and, grits and roasted salmon like we have it in the book. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, you can make it with salad and you brought some ingredients. Um, you're calling this tabbouleh mm-hmm. and it's you know, tomatoes, cucumbers, onions. Is this just a Mediterranean-inspired thing you would do with the fonio or is this actually a traditional thing you no, would do? No, absolutely. It's Mediterranean-inspired. You know, we, uh, in Senegal, we also have a colony of Lebanese that have that been living there for quite some time. We have, you know, Dakar in particular is a very cosmopolitan city, mm-hmm. but the Lebanese brought their cuisine, you know, with the tabbouleh many years ago and that are part of Senegalese cuisine as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's not a traditional Senegalese dish, but I, I like that because it works perfectly with fonio. So I'm just going to make a dressing here. Okay. With uh, fonio. The fluff fonio. 
we just assume that we made the dressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not much more complicated than lemon and olive oil. So. That's it. That's pretty much what it is. We just take that seed out. And then I'll finish with the herbs. Since we're going to serve them now, I'll have the herbs right away. If not, you can do the whole salad ahead of time. And just add the herbs at the end, right before serving, because you don't want them to start turning uh, dark gray because the acidity of the lemon will be eating up the, the chlorophyll. Sure, sure, sure. Of the, so we have lots of mint, lots of parsley. Oh my God, smell that green. It's great. Isn't it? You just do this by sight. Yeah, by sight, pretty much, yeah, it's actually, and you make sure you taste it as you go, you taste, and then once you're happy with your taste buds, it's, it's ready. Okay. <laughs> That's how my mom would tell me how to cook. How much do I add here? Just taste it, and then you'll know how much you add, you know. She, she would never measure anything. It's just like tabbouleh, but enough of that fun, you to give it some body, give it mm. some, yeah. yeah, yeah, give it a little substance and all those herbs, and what a nice way to serve it. Chef, thank you so much for coming and showing me the seed of the universe. You're welcome. Pierre Chom's new cookbook is The Fonio Cookbook. You can find Fonio online, and he left us with some recipes to get us going. Creamy Fonio cereal with blueberries, pomegranate, and brown butter. That sounds amazing. And Fonio with grilled lamb chops and asparagus with mafe sauce. They're all at SplendidTable.org. Well, that's our show for the week. Keep sending us your cooking questions. We'll get back to them next time. Record them as voice memos on your phone and email them to contact at splendidtable.org. Thank you for listening. Take care, wear a mask, and be safe. Talk to you next week. And before we go, we're going to leave you with one more little thing you got to try. Hi, it's Melina Davies, and I am the author of the new cookbook, Olive in Time. And a great trick is to add sparkling water to your meatballs. I know it sounds strange, but it really works. I use a 50-50 blend of beef and pork. I add an egg, some finely chopped onions and parsley, a little bit of salt, some breadcrumbs, and a little bit of uh, sparkling water. Then roll them up in some small meatballs and fry them in a pan with some butter and some vegetable oil, not too much. And you have yourself some incredible, delicious, light, fluffy, crispy meatballs. Enjoy. ABM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lukey, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. Mm-hmm.